0: Welcome back to The Sharpen Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I'm Ashley, the creator and producer of the show. Thank you so much to Rocky Talkies for presenting this podcast. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers in Denver. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and have impressive battery life and work in the extreme cold. They even just came out with a fully waterproof radio. If you like discounts, get 10% off by going to rockytalki.com slash sharp end. Not properly preparing your body is the easiest way to find yourself in a dangerous situation, especially when you're up against challenging environments or conditions. That's where Protects Liquid Supplements can help. Protects Hydration, Energy, Rest, and Immunity help you prepare, perform, and recover. They come in a stick pack that you can take anywhere and add to any liquid. Just tear, pour, and drink. No powders, no mixing, no mess. Used and trusted by Navy SEALs, first responders, and professional athletes. Get up to 30% off your order of hydration and energy at protect.com slash sharp end. With over a century of wool and textile design and manufacturing experience, Minus 33 is run by people who love to be outdoors and who want everyone, regardless of skill level or experience, to be welcome, comfortable, and safe in the outdoors. That's why they crafted sustainable, high-quality merino wool under and outerwear. Check them out at Minus33.com and use the code SHARPEND for 15% off. This last May, Alan and Sam were skiing down Mount Baker, a 10,781-foot active glacier-covered stratovolcano in the North Cascades of Washington, when they came upon another skier who had fallen 35 feet down inside a crevasse after the snow bridge that he was standing on collapsed. With their knowledge of rope skills and crevasse rescue, they sprung into action to rescue the stuck skier.
1: All right, I'm uh, Sam Leon. I'm 40 years old. Live uh, just north of Seattle, and I've been uh, climbing and skiing around the Cascades for about 14 years now. And uh, I work as a plastic surgeon at a hospital just north of Seattle.
2: My name's Alan Taylor. I live in South Seattle. I've been skiing with Sam for many, many years now. And uh, originally from New Hampshire, and started skiing in New Hampshire and Vermont, and moved out here about 12 years ago. And I've just been skiing as much stuff as I possibly can since then, and. Uh, Work as an arborist, um, but obviously skiing has always been the priority. Had a a very interesting day up on Mount Baker last spring. It was uh, towards the end of May, though. um, At least for conditions, it certainly felt more like the end of June. We had a really hot spring and um, had a pretty interesting situation where we ended up hauling um, this fellow out of a crevasse uh, from another party.
0: So Mount Baker is in Washington
2: it is. It's uh, one of our glaciated volcanic peaks. And uh, it's a particularly snowy and glaciated one, um, but not quite as massive um, as Mount Rainier, which is the big mountain that a lot of people probably know. Um, it's sort of the typical mountain that people climb to get ready for Mount Rainier. So it's like kind of like one step down from that. But still, lots of glaciers, lots of snow.
0: And And what day was this? You said it was in May?
2: I think it's like the 29th of May, so just getting right on towards the end. And um, yeah, Sam, do you want to just go through like the, the plan we had for the day?
1: Sure. So we uh, arrived at the trailhead pretty early in the day. Our original goal was to climb up the south side of Baker and then ski off the east side and then loop counterclockwise around to the North Ridge and climb back up that to the Summit Plateau and then ski back down the south side. It's
0: a big day. Um,
1: that ended up being a, it's, it was a big day. <laughs> it ended up being a bigger day than I had anticipated. So uh, we got as far as um, tagging the summit and skiing a ways down the east side, but then just thinking about the open crevasses with it being a relatively warm spring and the amount of glaciers we still had to traverse just to get to the north ridge, and then climbing back up and then skiing back down the south side pretty late in the day, um, we decided to, to pull the plug. As, I was very happy to not uh, circumnavigate the mountain and then climb a, a technical uh, ice ridge. Uh, so we ended up skiing back up.
2: <laughs> Sam, you can make it sound like this really good, solid risk management decision we made. I, I feel like my memory is that I didn't want to get home too late on a Sunday night. And if it was a Saturday night, there's a very good chance we would have kept going and just slept in the car. <laughs>
1: We, we had our reasons, suffice it to say. Um, we had headlamps. We,
2: we, we had reasons and headlamps. <laughs> yeah.
1: So we, we came back up the east face, tagged the summit again, and then came back down the south side. And at this point, actually, most parties had left the summit plateau and, and were skiing down. There was only uh, one other party that was skiing uh, down around the same time we were coming down. So even then at, uh, oh, shoot, Alan, we probably left the summit at like three o'clock or so. Maybe two thirty, at least
2: maybe maybe pushing four or something like that. It it was getting kind of late, and uh, it'd been a really busy day on the mountain. You know, I bet probably um, just the route we were on probably saw thirty or forty people at least, probably more. Um, It's it's a really popular route, Um, and and Mount Baker is just a really popular mountain, so popular route on a popular mountain. Um, Right, but it was definitely getting on towards mushy snow o'clock. Um, and that certainly that time of day when the bridges start getting a bit soft.
0: The snow, the snow bridges.
2: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's that classic thing where folks like to wake up early and ideally that the snow is a bit more hard and frozen first thing in the morning. And the, the classic mountaineering thing is, you you know, you wake up at like 11 and try to get off the mountain, uh, before things get too soft and mushy. You know, a lot of those folks are shooting for even being off the mountain by early or mid morning and at least in our experience, skis give you a bit more leeway. Just your ability to move around and also have your weight be distributed seems to make a big difference there. But as I'm sure this story will relate, skis are not a perfect uh, solution to the crevasse problem. But yeah, anyway, so we we dropped off the top and I was actually skiing out ahead a little bit and I was just sort of along with this other group of three guys that were just ahead of us and Sam was just a little ways behind. And Came up over a roll. So we were relatively high on the squawk glacier, which um essentially you go to the trailhead, walk some trail for a while, and then you get popped right out on the base of this glacier and you you head from the toe right up the mountain. And at a certain point you have to traverse around to a a different climb to the summit. But it you know, it's just the thing that's like straight up out of the woods. Um and there's a couple of convexities a little bit higher on it. And I mean, you know, granted you start on this this glacier and you're at the the total toe of it or just little snow fields and that sort of thing and then it builds as you go up but we were relatively high on the glacier not not too far below where we make this traverse around to this feature called the roman wall and um you know just sort of popped over roll and there are these two folks that were waving at us i think they were partners of The fellow who ended up being in the crevasse—we're going to call him Ben, even though that's not his name. Um, I just wasn't sure if he wanted to be associated with this, Um, so we'll just give him a pseudonym for the sake of this one. You know, these his two female partners were waving at us, and uh, you know, at first I thought they're just being kind and being like, "Watch out for that hole," but then they're yelling, "There's somebody in the hole!" Um, and that was certainly not not a good thing to hear. But the good news is, I mean, we were there, we had lots of gear, and um, just sort of started diving into what's it going to take to get this all figured out. And luckily, he was actually able to communicate out of the hole. He wasn't super deep down in there, and I estimated after um, you know, we did some rigging a little later on that is about 35 feet down. Um, these, You know, this is absolutely a glacier, but we're not talking about, like, an Alaska glacier or...
0: This has tons of crevasses that, that you can see and yeah. avoid.
2: Yeah. And and this is like, in this fellow's defense, this is a really popular area. People go there, you know, I've like been drinking beers on this glacier and a cutoff t-shirt. It's, you know, it's the sort of place where I think there's a real feeling of safety in numbers because there's so many people there. And it just, it doesn't feel like a big, scary part of the mountain. You know, it's not like you, you get on some of the glaciers on Rainier and you're like, this thing wants to kill me. I need to be really careful. Um, so I think there's an element of, um, you know, it's just easy to be a bit more relaxed there because the danger is not nearly as in your face. And then you also look around, you know, and maybe you see like 30 or 40 other people. And, um, you know, it just, this is an area where you literally are legally allowed to ride snowmobiles. So it's—it's it's, it's got a lot of different stuff going on. And there was even going to be a a ski mountaineering race there last spring that was delayed due to weather, but hopefully it'll happen this spring. So just like lots, lots of stuff goes on on this glacier. And uh, anyway, it appeared that he just, this uh, fellow just skied down and stopped briefly and missed the fact that he was on a relatively shallow snow bridge and it was just the right time of day where it was getting really weak. And he was even unlucky enough that his skis lined up parallel with the crevasse and he punched through. And, um, uh, I think he got super lucky cause his feet stayed under him and he managed to come to a stop and was communicating with folks upright. Yeah. Upright with folks on the surface. Um, so that, that just gave us a, a bit of a, Got to take a nice breath because obviously, if somebody's down in there and they're unresponsive, that's um, a much worse situation. Uh, but anyway, I think at that point, you know, Sam, Sam had skied up, and we started to formulate a plan for getting, for getting this guy out. You want, you want to take it from there, Sam?
1: Sure. I'll add too that. You know, where he went through, it, it was not entirely obvious there was crevasse there. I mean, after he had poked through, obviously there was a hole in the snowpack. So you could see that there was a crevasse there, but had he not gone through there, it was not at all obvious that there was a crevasse in that position. And it took us a little while when we were still above where he had gone through just to kind of see where this crevasse might go and, and pick a safe place to ski down, you know, giving the hole a wide berth so we could loop back around to, to underneath where he had fallen through. Um, so we showed up on the scene. They, I think, He had probably fallen in, what do you think, Alan, maybe 10, 15 minutes prior to when we showed up on the scene. His partners did have some time to drop off their packs a little bit lower and were working their way back up to the crevasse, and they were in communication with him. And one of them had actually um, activated some kind of emergency beacon. I I don't recall exactly what it was, but there was really poor cell reception in this area. So they said they had activated a beacon, but they weren't really able to to have a... Two way conversation with search and rescue folks. Um, So it it was a godsend to be able to actually chat with him to see, you know, hey, how you doing? Like, what's going on down there? Um, We were able to pretty quickly learn that the team did have a rope, but unfortunately, it was in his backpack. Um, So the one rope for this team is down in the hole with him. Um, He had been skiing, so he had ski boots on and skis and his feet were underneath him. He wasn't sure if his skis had popped off or not. He felt like at least one, if not both of them, were still attached to his boots and not released. And yeah, you could tell just in the tone of his voice that he you know, wasn't very excited to be down there, but he was doing okay. You know, He wasn't like screaming in pain or like really, really scared down there. He was you know, communicating up with us in a relatively calm manner. And then right around the time we were establishing about you know, 20 feet below the lip of this crevasse, this other team of uh, three guys who had been skiing down with us were also basically arriving on the scene. And it was really nice to have extra bit of gear from them. The, the guy who fell into the crevasse, his partners had a bit of gear. And these three guys had an extra rope, extra pulleys, extra carabiners, extra slings. And then Alan and I had a fair amount of gear too because our original intent was to climb a, a moderately technical ice route on the north side. So we had a bit of extra gear than we would have typically taken on a, uh, a glaciated ski trip. Um, So, uh, first thing we did is um, uh, just probed around where we were all stationed to make sure we weren't all standing on another crevasse uh, 20 feet below where he had.
0: Step number one, is the scene safe?
1: (laughs) And then um, pretty quickly got to work uh, bearing a set of skis, a pair of skis as a, a dead man and had a a sling wrapped around that to serve as our our master point and then even with the strength and numbers that we had we had one of the the guys in the other group just clip himself to that anchor and just kind of sit down in the snow a little bit below it um just because it was getting later on in the day where you know we we knew there'd probably be some weight on this anchor uh, uh, at one point or another so we just wanted a little bit of uh, backup there and then alan was gracious enough to volunteer to go down into the crevasse and The crevasse looked pretty dark and scary, so I was more than happy to let him head down there. I didn't want to disappoint him.
2: It uh, sort of seemed obvious to me that I was the logical choice to go down in. I just, um, While I don't have a ton of specific training in crevasse rescue as a professional arborist and a rope access technician and longtime mountain climber, wall climber, I just thought I, I probably had the most rigging expertise that I could bring to bear on the situation. And uh, so, yeah, I volunteered to go down in and and then tried my best also to just get good communication with everyone on the site. And I I feel like that is one of the things that we did do well is, um, I, much as I haven't done a lot of training for crevasse rescue, I've done a lot of training for rescue and work situations. And just, it's amazing how important that communication aspect is, and I think often Overlooked, and we'll we'll even do things like at work we'll use um, to simulate the stress of an actual rescue. A lot of times we'll use competition settings, and it's amazing the mistakes people will make uh, when they go too fast, or the the things that can get screwed up when people don't communicate well. So it's um, I, I've definitely tried to develop an approach of um, just slow down, communicate well, and and you go a lot faster by not screwing things up than you do by Trying, you know, it's like the slowest, slowest, smooth, smooth smoothest, fast approach. And I'd be really interested to know how I would have handled it if the situation had seemed a lot more dire with him, and just how I could have done controlling my own emotions in that situation. But it certainly helped that he sounded like things were fine down there, so there was really no no point in rushing. But anyway, so we'd gotten that anchor built, and uh, Sam had done a really nice job with that. I'd littered up with a bunch of extra gear. And then, even to really start approaching the edge, um, I'd gotten on a rope just with a prusik. Um, so we had the rope we had with us was a pretty skinny, it's like a seven-one or something, just a a twin line cut down to forty meters, and um, yeah, just real real minimal stuff, which is sort of funny. But that's like our heavy rope because um, normally we would have had just like a thirty meter, like six mil, um, something really small. But um, just sort of gave myself a little self-belay and and was checking things out at the edge, probing for solid snow and getting the one thing I actually, I don't often carry a shovel this late in the spring, just because uh, we're sort of through the time of the year when we're carrying avi gear, because everything's pretty much gone um, at that point. But um, one of the folks in the other team had a shovel. It was really nice, because the snow as I was trying to peel it away from the edge, was landing right on Ben's head. So,
0: Also, you use it to dig the anchor.
2: Yeah, def- definitely faster than... Um,
0: your hands for your boot.
2: Or, yeah, or your boots. Yeah, your ads um, uh, on our teeny tiny. So we just had Petzl gullies, so pretty minimal ice tools. So I, I think I, I'm one of the takeaways for me is I'm a little more sold on bringing, even if it's just like a, a jokey Schemo shovel, like Schemo race shovel that you would never actually trust in an avalanche situation, just having something is probably a pretty wise bet. But uh, we got the edge all dug back and, and really had a good idea of where he was relative to where the edge was and trying to figure out how best to get down in there. Um, so that yeah, those guys did a great job on the anchor. And we got ready by padding the lip. Um, so we'd used a pair of skis quick strap together for the dead man anchor and then also a pair of skis uh, quick strap together for the edge padding, uh, which seemed to be really nice because we just laid the lines between the the tech binding, like toe and heels, and sort of held everything in place.
1: And I think initially, Alan, when you got to the lip and started digging out the lip, we weren't quite sure his status down there. His, I mean, theoretically, if he had landed on a snow bridge and had a harness on and had crampons and an axe, like we could have just dropped a, a loop down to him and, and just sort of hauled him out without actually... Sending one of somebody else down into the crevasse. So I think Alan, we had given you a ton of gear, extra ice screws, extra slings, beaters, because we thought you could get to the lip and pad it, and and then drop a loop down from the other rope we had, and we might get lucky and be able to just haul him out, and this could all be over relatively quickly. That did not end up being the case, um, but we didn't quite know exactly what we would need to do until he was. Alan, that is, was at the lip, had dug some snow out, was able to see him down um, towards the bottom of this crevasse and and had established some communication with him about where exactly he was and what was going on.
2: And and I guess one of the critical pieces here is that he was wedged. Um, So while he was uninjured, he was... Completely stuck. Uh, the crevasses maybe uh, towards its top was maybe eight or ten feet wide, and then constricted down to you know essentially nothing at the bottom, and um, had a pretty decent constriction right where he was. So while he was doing okay, he really could only move his arms like from the elbow up, and so there wasn't anything he could really do to help. And I actually don't. I think even if he'd been wearing a harness, I probably would have had to go down there just to clip the. Um, haul system onto his harness I don't think he could have actually reached his waist uh, but as we'll get to in a minute, unfortunately he wasn't wearing a harness and that made the whole thing a bit more uh, complex um, a critical piece of everything that was going on just seeing what was going on with him and, and where he was relative to what we had to do Um, But anyway, I I switched over from uh, just using a Prusik on the rope to using an ATC backed up with a Prusik. Normally, I wouldn't have the ATC, but again, we were doing some climbing. I I would have just probably used a Munter um, in my normal setup. But that was one thing I found interesting, this whole thing, is it just the number of tools available for working on these really narrow diameter ropes. You just have sort of less and less things available as the diameter gets skinnier and skinnier. So it really pushes you to... Be able to work with the basics. Granted, it's we're running really light, so it's not like we'd have anything like a greegri or something that could really go up and down easily with us, anyways. But um, just seems like you. What well, one of the things you know in, in my reflections on all of this, I think a lot of folks that are carrying these really light ropes, I, I don't think many of them have actually like tried using them <laughs> for any of the stuff.
0: Right. You pra- practice with your gear and use your equipment. Know how it works in all the scenarios.
2: You know, it'll, it'll feature in the story. There's the micro traction, which is this little petzel pulley that has a two cam in it. it. works great on all these really narrow things. And, like, that's just super easy and straightforward. Like, building an anchor, hauling on a micro traction, that's all really easy. But, like, actually ascending and descending these ropes, um, I think that's where it gets a lot more challenging. And, and that's the sort of stuff where, even if you're like a comfortable, competent rock climber, you might um, find it to be a bit tricky. Uh, But anyway, so I dropped down in and um, got down to Ben, and it was a really tricky situation. For one, you're down there in the hole, and while it's like 55 and slightly cloudy up above, um, it's just dripping wet down in there, and he was already starting to get pretty cold and Understandably so, because he's sandwiched between two blocks of ice. Um, you know, even though he was wearing he was wearing a hard shell, so it's not like he was underdressed for the day. But there's just no way you're not going to get cold. And this is another thing that I, you know, I sort of, if you'd asked me this, I would have told you. Well, obviously, a crevasse is going to be kind of wet and cold, but it's like. Real wet and real cold down there, and I didn't even dress appropriately, and ended up getting kind of cold towards the end. Uh, But he's just wedged in there, one arm above his head, one arm in front of him. He's just barely able to move around and not really able to help with much anything. And then one of his uh, toes is still engaged in his skis, and they're jammed way below him. So that's that's tricky. And then even if he wasn't still in one of his skis, it's all just ice around him. He's in ski boots, so you know, essentially can't can't do anything there um so i think first thing i did was built an anchor and got some of my stuff off i as sam said we just loaded me up with all sorts of stuff i even took a backpack down you know warm clothes and just other random stuff that i thought i might need and that whole time i'm still working off just a atc and and a prusik and just sort of i ended up having to do a good deal of up and down so i would just pull pull rope through the atc and then tighten up the prusik and um also, that whole time, which it was the thing that ended up being really nice, is I had steel-torred crampons, and I had my Petzl Gullies, which actually can swing into ice, um, unlike a lot of the you know super light Schemo aluminum stuff that a lot of people are using, um, and, and I use sometimes. So it's still pretty light stuff, but not like the lightest. So I just ended up, you know, I built an anchor, and then we started to figure out how we're going to get him unwedged. And luckily, there was a little shelf, probably, like three four feet up from where his feet were like vertically maybe four feet up and then probably four or five feet back um you know, i was able to like st- i could have stood there unroped as long as we could get him to the shelf he could stand there and we'd get a harness on him and and get that all figured out but like getting him there was going to be real tricky
0: was there a possibility of him falling farther down in in the crevasse like if you moved a certain way could he have gone any deeper
2: I mean, a couple of interesting things there. One is that he, he could have like maybe gotten a little further in there. We were pretty darn near the bottom. It was like a big, long crack that he and all his stuff had fallen into. And then right behind him where I was sort of set up, that crack went maybe like five or six feet deeper, but it still sort of constricted. With like it, Maybe if you were really unlucky you could have gotten yourself wedged in a decent bit deeper but not like we're not like staring off into the abyss here like we're, we're pretty much at the bottom of this thing but the scary part is like at one point he did slip down a little and he's like it's getting hard to breathe uh which was really the only truly oh shit moment of the whole operation but just that idea that folks can slip in and get so wedged that they are starting to have trouble breathing Just thinking through the ways in which you can be down there and just really be in trouble, either because you're having trouble breathing or because you're cold, or you know, all I think we think about trauma a lot with crevasse falls, which is a very legitimate thing to be worried about. Uh, But it, the the dangers go far beyond that, which you know certainly was sort of driven home watching him get rapidly much more hypothermic. But then, I mean, probably good to go back to you at this point, Sam, because you're managing things up on the surface.
1: Yeah, so I I was anchored into the rope as well um, that uh, Alan was basically hanging from. I just had a prosthetic on that I was able to slide back and forth. And uh, as soon as Alan started uh, wrapping down into the crevasse, um, we got to work up on the glacier um, just trying to anticipate what Ben might need when we got him out. So we had um, the rest of the folks going through the gear that they had to find warm, dry jacket, warm, dry hat, warm, dry shirt. Um, long underwear, socks. We had a small little uh, jet boil stove. So we had someone um, melting some snow for hot water. And I, I think someone also had a, a freeze-dry meal that they were going to prepare um, and have that be nice and hot when he came up.
0: It's like the most amazing crew to arrive on scene <laughs> ever. Well,
1: we were look, really lucky to have that many people there. I mean, this will be one of the lessons at the end. But if, if you're just a team of two and somebody goes in, especially if that one person, if that person's carrying the rope, like your, your resources all, be, all of a sudden become very, very limited. Um, so we were really, really lucky to have uh, this other crew of guys be there and, and for everyone to be relatively well equipped. So by the time we pooled our group resources, we had a lot, a lot going for us. And uh, we also figured once we knew that he didn't have a harness on, we knew we'd have to get him into a harness. We knew, um, we'll talk about this a little bit later perhaps, but he was wearing ski boots that weren't going to work with the crampons that he had. He had mountain boots that were going to work with his crampons, but those were in his pack. So we figured we'd need to haul him out of this, you know, short of having him change boots down there, which didn't seem like a a very good idea. Um, So we had uh, one of the other group uh, members on the surface of the glacier start probing in a straight line away um from the crevasse in the direction we would be hauling to make sure that whoever is at the back of the rope you know hauling him out wouldn't like step into a crevasse downhill from where we were working and they actually found one like not too far back from where everyone had dropped all their gear maybe 15 20 feet further down the mountain so we put a big x with ski poles at the lip of that so no one would go beyond that point so we figured we'd have to reset a few times on the haul um, but we'd keep it pretty tight wouldn't have people heading down slope too far and, and potentially falling into this other crevasse and then yeah other than that stuff going on i was kind of just at the lip you know uh, talking with alan you know relaying information about what was going on up at the surface he was sending info about what he had going on down there but our our first goal was really just you know getting him unwed so that we could get a harness on him and that proved to be pretty challenging i, I know alan you tried at least a few different things before we settled on a technique that worked for that
2: yeah yeah it and I'll just say, like, from what Sam was saying there, it, that role of being the communicator on the edge was really critical. It it made, it
0: made sounds crucial.
2: Yeah. It made, for one, it just made me and Ben feel a lot better just having this link to the surface. You know, Sam would go to do something totally legitimate for like a minute or two and I'd be like,
0: like no, we're, back. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Help, anybody. I'm stuck in a crevasse. You know, just having somebody up there, and even if he wasn't doing anything, just being able to like look up and see him up there was very reassuring. Um, so I think anyone who's doing a, a crevasse rescue, just like keep that in mind of having that friendly face up there to relay information or just be there for you is really key. Um, but we tried a few different things. Like I tried snaking. Uh, now, granted, these are Dyneema slings, so they're real skinny. I tried snaking a sling between his legs and. Sort of combining that with the sling on his backpack, and that that was too uncomfortable. So, we we had the team on the surface trying to do a bit of hauling um, on stuff that I was just setting up on Ben's gear. Um, and so, we were hauling it, and this is the haul system we ended up using throughout the whole rescue. But it's just called a drop loop, um, where you essentially have one end of the rope tied off to the anchor, and then you send a loop of rope down into the crevasse goes through a pulley, um, and in this case is a progress capture pulley, So that's what's doing all the, you know, sort of life protection that'll ensure that the person doesn't drop. But then that tail of the rope goes back up and out of the crevasse over the edge and then gets pulled on from there. So the nice thing is it's a two to one. And also there's very little slop or sit back um, because that cam is just really good at at capturing pretty much all the progress that you make. Um, And also, granted, on, on ropes this skinny, you really can't prussics aren't that reliable we were were sort of using them because we had to but um we certainly wouldn't have wanted to haul on them so um anyway the the thing that finally ended up working is i just got like two different slings tied off to a bunch of different places on his backpack um you know backpacks are strong luckily and uh we ended up doing that getting him unwedged there and then it was even tricky just to get him back a few feet I, i think i had to. Hang some slings off the anchor to get his boots in, and um, finally, just with much like heaving and hoeing, uh, we got him on stood onto this ledge uh, where he could just take a moment. And he, he was getting real cold by that point. I mean, it was good because you know now that he wasn't sandwiched uh, between ice cubes, uh, he was things things were. Gonna, he was still pretty wet, so I don't think he was getting better yet, but he wasn't getting worse
0: but he was so relieved
2: yeah yeah he was pretty psyched but even things like you know i had to like put his harness on him right because his hands had lost the dexterity to do that which i mean i've i've experienced that many times so i totally i totally get what was happening there Uh, but you know just really really good victory for morale and um for you know just him feeling like things were moving along too and for us feeling like we were making good progress getting him stood on that ledge and that was pretty simple just got him got him in a harness one of the interesting things i took a spare harness with me but it didn't fit so i had to go digging in his pack um for his which is is definitely a thing because i think you know i mean let's be honest there's sort of like a lot of people that climb mountains are sort of the same size and there's not maybe as many people that are uh from very Different sizes. I don't know, I'm trying to put that in the most <laughs> gentle way possible. Um, but we just, you know, I have one harness. It's not adjustable, and it um, it only fits people of a certain size. So it's sort of this interesting thing to think about. Um, you, know, you get into a situation, you're trying to help somebody else out. Um, so I get them in a harness, and then um, on the surface, they started hauling, and it, it all just it went super smooth uh, up to a point. So I'll, I'll let you take it back, Sam.
1: <laughs> well, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think you had to kind of dive underneath him to get his ski off before we could get him up onto that oh, ledge. Yeah. So I, I think we were trying to haul on his backpack, but we were running into some resistance from um, the one ski that was still attached to his boot,
0: which was like stuck stuck in the crack. So when you would when you would try and pull him up, like he would, his leg was pulling pulling him down.
1: Yeah, so I think you had to kind of dive in head first down there to try to get his boot out, Alan. And So the process of getting him unwedged and just moved, you know, five feet onto this little ledge took easily an hour, uh, if not more. That was probably the most challenging part of all this. By the time we got him in a harness and we were starting to haul him up, that part went actually pretty smoothly and pretty quickly. but uh speaking of which we got him in his harness. We had this drop loop on his harness now, and we had plenty of people up on the surface of the glacier to haul. Um so we didn't feel like we needed more of a mechanical advantage than the two to one that the drop loop gave us. Um and we all had either um you know a knot on the rope to hold on to, um some people had little key blocks, some people had pressics, so something where you could put your weight into the rope. It's kind of difficult, you know, just holding on to these tiny little ropes with your hands and pulling. But we had Oh, five people um able to pull on the rope. So we made relatively quick progress. Again, he didn't have crampons on, so he just has, you know, slippery plastic boots on glacier ice. So he's wasn't really able to do much other than just kind of, you know, use his feet and his hands to just sort of, you know, so he wasn't scraping up the ice just to kind of guide his body as as we were hauling him up. We had to reset a few times, um but the nice thing about that micro traction is that it just grabs th- that that progress you've made. There's no, you know, drop back down. Um, and then we got him to the lip, and you know, having. Perused Freedom of the Hills back in the day. You're like, oh, getting people over the lip can be kind of challenging. So I, I thought we were all ready for this. I had a an ice axe planted. Oh my gosh, it's the
0: hardest part of it. It's the hardest and, part of it.
1: Well, and you know, in, in his defense, he's freezing cold. Um, at one point on the hall, I think one of his gloves had gotten caught in the micro traction. so we had to somehow lower him a little bit to get his glove unstuck because we weren't able to haul him anymore so he like this guy had been through so much up to this point um i thought just bearing an axe over the lip you know you'd be able to grab onto the axe and kind of you know duck and roll yourself yourself up under the surface of the crevasse under the glacier like how tricky could that be but when you're wearing like slippery plastic ski boots you're freezing cold you can't really feel your hands you're exhausted you just want to be out of this thing It, it took a lot of work we ended up um I, I kind of hung myself over the lip of the crevasse and just sunk an ice screw in as far down as I could reach, then hung a shoulder-length runner from that, a shoulder-length sling from that. So he was able to get um, one of his feet in that sling and then use that as a, a foot, and he was able to kind of pull himself up and get to the point where the, um, the, his belay loop on his harness was pretty much even with the lip of the crevasse, just a little below. And then I thought for sure we get it, but with his boots so slippery and him just not having much upper body strength, as you're trying to haul, you're kind of just pulling him into the lip instead of pulling him up and over the lip. So I had to, we basically got him up a a few inches and then I took that screw out and put it in about two feet higher, hung the sling from it again, he was able to get his foot into that. And then with you know, two axes, one for each of his hands, over the lip and standing up in this sling. He was able to get his, his center of gravity up over the lip of the crevasse and then kind of roll onto the 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 top of the the glacier. Um, so that that part was time consuming as well. And the poor guy was I, I think done for the day at this point um but in reasonably good spirits all through that so what
0: well, what were the other spirits like what was what was the tone and the energy like of everybody that was up on the top hauling were people frantic calm scared like what was were what were people feeling uh,
1: these guys were doing great uh the team of three guys who were skiing down with us who, who weren't in the same party as Ben um You know, had, um, uh, you know, gear. They were prepared um, as far as the gear goes. Um, They were great friends with each other. They were chatting with Ben's two partners the whole time, you know, getting to know them a little bit better, getting to know Ben a bit better. Um, Intermittently, someone would try to get a call out with a cell phone. Um, We tried everyone's cell phones. Uh, Somebody's actually may have been mine. We were able to, like, sort of get a call out, but then it dropped pretty quickly after we were connected with Search and Rescue. Um, So, yeah, just, Just kind of getting ready for getting him out, um, getting as much prepared as possible. But everyone was calm, um, probably a bit nervous, probably a bit scared, but they were keeping their composure pretty well, I think.
0: Well, so uh, Ben's out of the crevasse, but you got Alan still in there. Alan, how did you get out? Did You climb out?
1: <laughs> we all just took off at that point. We figured Alan could fend for himself. Hi, so, Alan.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, I wanted to collect his gear because it seemed like at that point he was going to be in good enough shape to get himself out of there, and I figured it'd be a lot easier if he got himself out of there on his skis than and they're a nice pair of skis too. And I didn't want to leave a bunch of garbage in the crevasse, so we we fished around and. Uh, I had Sam haul out his pack and then sent up another load. Sam was just at the lip, just hand over handing stuff out for a little while and sent out his skis. I think we only ended up losing a, a few little inconsequential items um, to the to the mountain. Um, at least that's that's what I think happened. But um, then that's actually that's the point at which I started to really get cold. I you know, had ignored Sam's perfectly good advice of wearing a hard shell down into there and. Um, I had been nice and warm when I was. I was basically just climbing up and over him multiple times and like chimneying around. It was really kind of fun climbing in a lot of ways, except for there's a person right near your crampons and you need to not stab them. So Hit that him. that yeah. part was a little taxing. you
0: um, probably appreciated that.
2: Yeah, no no puncture wounds that I know of. At, at least if uh, if one happened, he was very stoic. Um, so I I had but in just the. 15 minutes it took to get him out. I was just standing there. It's the, the only reason I have a few pictures. I didn't intend to take photos, but uh, my camera just lives on my backpack. And my backpack went down there with me. And then he was getting hauled out. And I didn't have any, anything else to do. So I actually got one of the better photos I feel like I've taken of him getting hauled out. Um, but then, yeah, just collected gear, and then I actually found it pretty easy to climb out. Uh, just sort of chimneying up for part of it, and then um, I just had—I'd given him one tool to try to help out climbing a little bit with, and I just had a single tool, and actually just sort of zipped right out of there. But with with only the confidence that you can have when you're on top rope, um, I'm sure if I was like trying to free solo my way out of there, um, it would have been very <laughs> be different, <laughs> very different story. Um, but it then popped up to the surface and. Um, Definitely, definitely noticed how chilly I was and was was happy that everybody was up there and, and everything seemed to be going on pretty well, which is like a, a sort of also funny coda to the story because I, I got back to the surface and I had a decent reception. Uh, so I started getting texts uh, because it was late on a Sunday. My partner didn't know where I was and I run the tracker on my inReach, uh, which had just randomly stopped tracking in the middle of a glacier for, <laughs> you know, what... Uh, We still never. I should have looked back at my um, watch to see how long I was in there for. But yeah, I mean, Sam, what do you figure is that like two, two and a half hours, something like that?
1: Probably, yeah. It uh, definitely over an hour and a half. Probably over
2: two. Yeah, and so I emerged to these like, "Are you okay?" texts, and uh, that was a. It was both like you know I needed to get back to them ASAP to have them not worry. But also, it was a perfect like proof of concept that if uh, I, it had been me, um, somebody would have at least known relatively soon. I mean, granted, I was skiing with Sam that day, but um, I've done some soloing on glaciers. Um, and But it definitely a real wake up because, um, you know. Well, he ended up being on the glacier and being okay and like, you know, totally coming back around with some movement and some fluids and some dry clothes. uh, I'm pretty convinced that if he had been sandwiched in that ice for even another 20 minutes or half hour, like it would have been reaching critical, really critical situation with the hypothermia. And I don't know how he would have fared if they had had to wait on a search and rescue to arrive, which I'm sure that would have been at least a couple hours behind us. And in, in the best case scenario, and then you know, it, it's not hard to imagine. Like it's it's pretty wild to think, right? You could just have this sort of.
0: Oh no, that's a sobering. That's that's a sobering thought.
2: Yeah, like you have this semi miraculous fall where you go 35 feet and don't get hurt, and then you could still be fighting for your life, um, or potentially not make it just from pure hypothermia. So that. That thing and and then just feeling how chilly I've gotten and, and I've you know I've played this game a bunch of like how little stuff can I bring um, as a sort of early and very enthusiastic adopter of the ultra lightweight um, side of things uh, but I, I think in recent years I've definitely the pendulum has swung back towards just well
0: now you're just you're to carry some more stuff. Shovel with you <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> I know think of the vertical feet that will not be climbed because of the silly shovel um,
0: training weight yeah.
2: Yeah. So it, it was definitely um, a lot to think about there. Cause I, I thinking back on some of my, and, and that was something, you know, I just, one thing I want to leave folks with is that, uh, well, you know, obviously we like showed up and hauled a guy out and that makes us look pretty good. Like this could have very easily been me. And I've done some really silly stuff in the mountains and luck was on my side and I got away with it and hopefully I've learned from it, but you know, Come, come ask me in fifty years if I really did, if I'm still here, and we'll we'll know the answer at that point. Um, so I, anyway, I just I have tons of respect, especially for folks that come on here and tell their story, and uh, especially if it's. Maybe a story that involves some questionable decision making. Um, that takes that takes a ton of courage to do that. Um, and and I just want to recognize, like it, I've, I've been a very lucky person. Um, but even just you know a couple of weeks after this happened, I dumped my dirt bike, broke my leg, and I was really impressed. I was really impressed with how quickly it was like sixty degrees out. I was plenty warm, wearing all these pads. And uh, shock uh, made me really cold, really fast, and all, all I could think is, I'm so glad I'm not on snow right now. Um, so just that whole, it's a big deal. Uh, hypothermia, shock, warming, um, it's all, it's a, it can become a really big deal really fast, and I, I just, I don't think a lot of folks realize how big a deal it can become, how quickly. Um, but yeah yeah and then and then i guess my last just sort of thing that i am really struggling with um is how best to approach the rope situation um because so we have this situation where the person with the rope fell in but that that could vary so that same day sam and i were out there and one of us had the rope um i i don't even remember who it was but um you know it's the classic you carry the stove i carry the rope um, and we typically only rope up if we are on foot ascending on our crampons, uh, pretty much never rope up skinning and almost never rope up skiing. Uh, so there's, you know, in a two person team, there's a 50% chance the person that went in the crevasse had the rope. And so that's what personally I'm struggling with because, um, you know, Sam and I talked about this a little bit and it's like, yeah, maybe he could have soloed down in there. Uh, I mean, he's a pretty good climber better than I am. So I don't know, but yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts on this too, Sam. Of just like, you know, is it, are we going to start throwing in a second rope? <laughs> like when we, when we do stuff like this? Yeah. It's a really
1: interesting thought. Um, you know, you, you want to go light and fast and the idea of carrying a whole second rope seems you know completely th- against that whole ethic. Um, but yeah, if, if you have one rope and you're not roped up, which we rarely ever do when skiing downhill at one time, We've ever done that was during a race when it was mandatory and that was awful <laughs> so we, we never ski downhill roped up and if somebody the, the guy or gal carrying the rope goes in i don't know a good solution other than having a second rope or hoping that you're on a busy route and there's going to be other people around or relying on the person's ability who's, who's down in the crevasse to to self rescue um you know whether that's climb out themselves which you know their crampons are in their pack Their axes are probably on the back of their pack. Their feet are on skis.
0: Yeah, or if he's your wedge. I mean, just like Ben, Ben was wedged. There's no way that Ben could have have taken part in his rescue at that point.
1: He could have had crampons on his feet. He could have had an axe in one hand. He could have had a harness on with a bunch of screws and gear on it and have been just as stuck as he was without any of those things. Um, So, yeah, I... Perhaps very naively, I'm always like, well, if I carry two ice screws, I can just leapfrog them up the crevasse and, and aid my way out. But I'm not sure exactly how well that would work <laughs> if I was faced with that, that task. So yeah, it, I mean, like whenever you head into the mountains, you take risk, you take calculated risks. At least we think they're calculated. And this is definitely one of them, carrying just one rope um, when you're a team of two or three in this case.
0: That's a good point. Um sam what are what are some of the lessons that you learned from this incident
1: well i i think when and we were talking about this a bit earlier when you're heading down this route on the south side of baker it's a gorgeous day it's mid-afternoon there's 40 or 50 other people who have skied it just before you um you, know, you can see the tree line down below you it's a very gradual snow slope uh, in terms of like big mountain skiing it, it's really easy just to let your guard down and just be like i am having fun with my friends today like we're, we're down off the summit we're a thousand feet or two down like the weather's nice like this is going to go great i can just you know do some pleasure skiing now um and this is where this guy got into big trouble in that kind of terrain so it, it, it goes back to i think just recognizing that there's basically always something that can go wrong um even in your car driving home at the end of the day in the mountains, you could get in a car accident if you fall asleep at the wheel or, or miss a red light or something. So it just, constant vigilance is is so important. And it's so easy to just let your guard down and have fun out there, which is what we're all doing when we go into the mountains, hopefully. And, and um, just keeping that, keeping a few neurons in your brain that are assessing the risk around you, always firing and just thinking about all the little things you could potentially do to be mitigating that risk which again in this scenario I, where he fell in it was absolutely not obvious there was a crevasse i think anyone could have come to a stop there and have fallen into that crevasse um but just trying to do your best with always having your your danger feelers out and always be doing little little things here and there
2: to try to mitigate risk the the big blaring one is wear your helmet wear your harness it's just i think it's like a it's just So simple and and something that we've been adhering to for a while now. It's just, if glacier, then harness.
1: Yeah. Have a couple screws on your harness. Have some gear. Have a helmet. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It it would have dramatically eased this rescue. I I would have been down there for way less time. And he would have been out of there much sooner um, if I could have just gone down and clipped onto a harness. And if he had been unresponsive, um, I mean, that's probably the last little thought here is just if if folks haven't ever like tried to deal with an unresponsive person which i haven't had to deal with an unresponsive human being but i've trained with rescue dummies um which are obviously not easy to come by but in the rope access world and professional world we get to use them here and there um so it's it's a whole different ball game because even training on on your friend and them trying to pretend to be unresponsive you just subconsciously you end up helping for one and for two it's so uncomfortable to try to be truly unresponsive especially if you're hanging in a harness uh, you you basically can't do it you can only do it for very brief periods um so it's yeah that you know thinking about the challenge of getting him over the lip he was helping and um so it, it i think a whole new i always knew this stuff was challenging and, and i've trained it a bunch in other settings but um yeah, dealing with that um, dealing with an unresponsive victim in this situation would have just been a whole nother layer and um, I just I think that folks that maybe have never had that opportunity to try to move a, like a dummy around and perform a, a roped rescue. It, it's I don't know where anyone actually gets access to that if they're just like approaching this from a recreational side of things but it, it's um, yeah we're, we're we're heavy and awkward and um, if we're not helping, <laughs> we're a real pain in the butt to move around.
1: Um, and then just to finish the story, where we left it, he was still on the glacier. So we probably should we probably should mention that we, we did get down okay. Everybody did that day. Um, he started off, well, I, I did a quick assessment of him once we had dry clothes on him, got him some warm food, got him some warm water to drink. Um, he felt okay to walk out. Um, so we had a little bit of reception at that point on him, one of the phones and we were able to to call off the rescue once Alan got out of the crevasse and he was confident that he could walk down, Den was confident he could walk down. Um, we were able to, to just call off the search and rescue resources that were on their way. Um, and he started off walking, um, he made it maybe 50, 60 feet. And then we felt like it was probably safer for him to be on skis, um, just with the extra flotation that that affords. So we, we got him back onto some skis and then, uh, he and Alan had skied down to uh, below the glacier and I, um, his, his two partners wanted to walk. They didn't want to ski or snowboard down, down to the edge of the glacier. Um, so I just kind of, did some skiing with them, um, sort of uh, following the boot pack down, basically just taking a straight shot to where Alan and, and Ben were. And the three guys, um, around the time that we were packing up from the rescue, they had, they had taken off. They were kind of hot to get back, um, and we didn't feel like we needed any extra people at that point. So they they had taken off at that point. And then um, we got off the glacier down onto just a, a seasonal snowfield um, lower down on the mountain. And the three of them were pretty confident in their ability to get back to the car at that point. There was a pretty obvious boot pack that took you back to the trail and back to the trailhead. Um, so Helen and I uh, took off at that, that stage. And hightailed it back home because it was getting kind of late in the day. I think the way it was, we back didn't get partners. back until, yeah, pretty late in the in the evening. It wasn't but quite there was, early morning yet, but it was definitely <laughs> late evening by the time we got home.
2: There was a little element of like looking at our watch being like, you guys are all good, right? <laughs>
0: So have you heard from Ben um since uh, then? Have you
2: I think I think I texted with him a little bit afterwards and uh like everything was fine it sounded yeah. like um uh, but yeah, I, I actually encouraged them stuff. too to like I was like hey just make sure you like put some time in to, like process this cuz a sort of traumatic experience can really mess with you if you don't actually like if you're not intentional about trying to deal with it um having You know had some similar stuff like that happen it uh it can yeah it can it can really get in there and get to you and i'm sure i'm sure it'll he'll never look at a glacier the same way again having experienced that that's
0: interesting (laughs) well ben ben even though it's not your real name but ben if you're listening to this uh we hope you're doing well
2: yeah keep skiing man it's the best you already had the worst experience you could possibly have there's nowhere to go but up from here
0: Thank you so much to Alan and Sam for sharing their story. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the new Sharpen podcast channel on YouTube. And thank you as always to Rocky Talkies, Protect and Minus33 for sponsoring this episode. Thank you as well to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. The American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community exploring the many ways that we define climbing and the ways that climbing defines us. Check out their podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcast, and make sure to subscribe today. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.